2: With a $100,000 budget for redecorating, a resident pastry chef, and 35 bathrooms to choose from, working from home won't be too much of a strain on the first family. But behind the dazzling Palladian elegance, the White House can seem pretty small. Wedged into a couple of blocks in downtown Washington, it's certainly modest compared with the responsibility that weighs on its tenants. George Washington had to have it enlarged to accommodate his family, Billets for the president's senior staff are famously cramped. On property websites that pry into the world's most opulent state residences, it barely makes the top ten. But there's one feature of Joe Biden's new workspace that is genuinely colossal. The in-tray. The first pictures of the new president at his desk in the Oval Office showed him working through a pile of executive orders. It came up to his neck. Two days into the Biden presidency, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how might President Biden begin to turn things around? Joe Biden's inauguration took place in a capital city transformed by tight security, a pandemic, and four years of a presidency that resembled a denial of service attack on American governance. The list of problems needing urgent attention is staggering. COVID, the slump, racism, the climate, and the small matter of trust in the democratic process itself. How quickly can he begin to fix them? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the digital editor. Charlotte, John, happy birthday. Who are we
0: saying happy birthday to?
2: The podcast is exactly one year old. This is episode number 52, so it's our first birthday.
0: Happy birthday to you too.
3: I was very confused. Um, Where's the cake?
2: I'm afraid I have no gift for you beyond... The fact that we don't have to talk too much about Donald Trump in this podcast, which feels like it might be some form of present.
0: Yes. And you get, it's, it's like wishing your spouse happy anniversary when they forgot. You get the, you get the feeling of, of superiority that you remembered. That's our gift to you.
3: Exactly. <laughs> that sounds like it comes from experience, John Fasman.
2: <laughs> Trust me, it does.
3: Do you wake up at like 5 a.m. on your anniversary and just try to spit it out as soon as possible to make your wife feel guilty?
2: Um, I'm going to plead the fifth on this whole conversation. <laughs> Um, Changing the topic entirely I also discovered this week that podcasting As a format is 20 years old This week So apparently According to veteran podcaster Eric Newsom It was on inauguration day 2001 When George Bush became president When the first podcast feed ever dropped And it contained one item Which was the Grateful Dead song US Blues So we're one year old Podcasting is 20 years old It's a historic day There may be some other things going on as well.
3: (laughs) Much more minor.
2: More minor. Um, John, to give us a bit of a flavor of those more minor things that have been going on, you've spent Inauguration Day in Washington, D.C. How was that?
0: Yeah, I was out and about in the city this week. Uh, I grew up in D.C. and I, I sort of know what the days leading up to the inauguration tend to feel like. The city gets really crowded and excited It's like I would imagine L.A. is in the days leading up to the Oscars. And this year it felt quite different. The inaugural committee had asked people to stay away, so there were no tickets available to the public, and there were 25,000 National Guard troops deployed throughout the city, and they had basically locked down the federal part of Washington, the mall and the Capitol and the White House area. But the real heart of D.C., the working city of D.C., has always been across the river in Anacostia, and I wanted to find out what sort of impression the insurrection on January 6th and its aftermath had made there.
4: Are you with the economists? Yes, ma'am. Oh, good, okay.
0: One of the first people I met was Denise Rolag-Barnes. She's the publisher of The Washington Informer, the city's weekly African-American newspaper.
1: All of what we are seeing has been festering forever. Now we have a new incoming president and vice president and uh, we've got a long haul. But Dr. King showed us the way. So, (laughs) you know, I'm going to focus on that today.
0: I also spoke with Matt Miller at a food giveaway held at a park on the corner of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X Avenues. He was still upset by the attack on the Capitol.
4: It's just unfortunate that um, we have to experience this siege on our city like this. I hadn't experienced anything like this since 9-11. I do think that it's only right that, um, that our government and our, our, our local law enforcement does whatever it takes to, to, to provide safety for for the people of our city. I never would have imagined anything like this in my 52 years of living. I'm Don Vito Premier and I'm the vice president. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the president of Community Connoisseurs. There
0: were mixed feelings about what happened two weeks ago. It's,
4: it's mind-boggling that one, one part of it you want to say that oh the world's caving in and that it's you know racism and things like that me personally as a black man i don't particularly see that what i see is that there's a group of people um a huge group of people in the united states of america that are not happy with the way the system and government as usual was happening. And um, even though you look at it and you look at Trump and you say, well, he caused this, I beg to differ. I think a lot of this stuff already existed. And when you look over at over 70 million people who voted for him, yeah. obviously there's something that's not right. I don't know what that something is, but hopefully our new president can look at that and see if we can, um, you know, kind of like address those issues as well.
3: This morning, we're handing out turkey stuffing. We've got apples, we've got onions.
0: Kiana Barcelona was handing out food for the Martha's Table charity. She, at least, was optimistic about the new era.
3: So I think there's a real divide between what people see in the news and across social media as the inauguration. They see fear. And of course, that's something that we should all be worried about. But at the same time, we're here helping our neighbors, and that's the most important part.
2: So Charlotte, about a year ago, we were reporting from the Iowa caucuses, which were yet to be held. Joe Biden wasn't doing particularly well. I remember standing in a room uh, with Adam Roberts, our Midwest correspondent, watching Joe Biden talk to a crowd in Muscatine, Iowa. And there were only about 10 people in the room, and he spent two hours there. And his candidacy didn't look hopeless, but it looked like it was in a lot of trouble. What did you make of the speech he gave when he was inaugurated as the 46th president this week?
3: I thought it was a little long, but I thought that broadly it hit the right notes. Um, he spoke in pretty general terms about unity, but he also had some specific things to say. He named white supremacy and right-wing extremism. He spoke about a culture in which, quote, facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured and he called on not just Americans broadly to reject those lies, but also on leaders to be straight. And so there was a lot of stuff in there while trying to keep this sort of um, broad message of of unifying Americans. There was some specific things that he said that I think are important for people to hear to help them move forward. And the thing that I was most struck by, there are two things. One is when he talked about Americans moving forward. He said there's some people who are going to think this is naive, but then he said in prior crises, whether it was the Civil War or the Great Depression or the Second World War, quote, enough of us came together to carry us all forward. And I think that's the big question for his presidency is whether he can push the most malicious forces of the Trump era, lying, conspiracy theories, outright racism um, back toward the fringes. And whether enough Americans, both regular ones and those in Congress, can come together to find a way to carry us forward. Um, So he's not under any illusion that the entire country will be unified, but he wants to get this critical mass working together.
0: I think the call to unity was important, it was welcome, but I think we should be careful about what it actually means. If you remember Lincoln's famous Malice Toward None and Charity Toward All speech, he gave that in 1865 when the South was almost defeated. He was a magnanimous winner. And I think it's important now that we don't repeat the mistakes made 10 years after that speech in which Rutherford B. Hayes and politicians chose unity over justice and so ended up condemning African-Americans to a century of second-class citizenship, ended up instituting anti-democratic rule across the South. I think we have to bear in mind that there was just an attack on American democracy endorsed and inspired by the ex-president and endorsed by people who are still sitting in the United States Senate. So unity is great. Unity is better than disunity, but there has to be some sort of of atonement before unity. There has to be some sort of accountability before unity. So we should be clear-eyed about what the threat is and how serious it is and not choose unity for unity's sake.
3: I think that's exactly right. And I actually thought that that's what was so delicately managed by Biden's speech, because it wouldn't have been a good idea to get up there and just spend the entire however long it was that he spoke railing against Republicans even if one might think that they deserve it, um, that I don't think would have been particularly presidential or started off his term on the right note. What I think that he did well was balance that call for unity, again, with that idea that enough people, not everyone, but enough people need to come together. And he was really specific in talking about lies, including um, lies that were helped perpetuated by those in Congress, those who worked with him in the House and in the Senate. So I thought that he managed that balance pretty well, and then the other thing is that, you know, he's built a, a reputation for being a healer. And I think that that can be a little bit overstated. But when he quoted Lincoln and he talked about Lincoln saying when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, if my name ever goes down into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it. Biden then said, unifying the country, bringing the American people together, when he said my whole soul is in it you really felt like you believed him. And I think that sincerity and that genuine form of patriotism was on display yesterday in a way that I found moving. And I don't think, you know, I I think it's going to be really, really hard for him to do what he's laid out for himself while holding people to account in the way that you just described, which I think is vital. But I thought he did a good job of balancing those priorities.
2: Can I just push you both on this? When you talk about atonement and accountability, what what do you mean? Because there are some people who think that the Biden Justice Department should be told to go after prosecuting various people in Donald Trump's entourage who contributed to whipping up the fury that led to the insurrection on Capitol Hill. Is that what you mean? It is not. I don't think that the Justice Department should be told to do
0: anything. I think Joe Biden should say, I have nominated my attorney general, the Justice Department is independent, they'll make their own decisions. I think what I mean by atonement is I'd like to hear Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Cindy Hyde-Smith and Tommy Tuberville and other senators who voted to disenfranchise their fellow citizens apologize and say that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. I'd like to hear people who stormed the Capitol say it was a huge mistake. I believed the lies that I shouldn't have believed and I was wrong and I accept punishment. I think there needs to be some acknowledgement that the attempts to overturn the results of an election you didn't like, especially those attempts made by... Elected members of Congress need to be accounted for and need to be apologized for.
3: So, just to push back on that, I understand that desire. To me, that sounds like a bit of a fantasy in that I just don't think it will ever happen. That's something that might be nice, but it's just not part of the political reality. And so, when I talk about the part of his speech where he spoke about enough people coming together, I think it's a question of marginalizing yeah. those people, you know, people who built their whole career based on um, perpetuating mis- lies and, and misstatements that originated from Donald Trump or from various conspiracy theories online, you know, the senators and congressmen who, who put their careers behind that, you know, are they going to come forward and say, actually, I was wrong. I'm really sorry. I'm I've, I've done something that undermines the integrity of our electoral system. I think that's unlikely. More likely. And what I hope happens is they can't raise any money and they don't get elected next time. And um, enough people who were kind of on the fence and trying to split the difference, you know, Mitch McConnell, who waited a month to acknowledge that Joe Biden was president, that those people who kind of played along before finally doing the right thing, that those people say, okay, we're not going to affiliate with these crazies um, who are undermining the Constitution anymore. We're going to think about how to do our jobs, which is how to help tackle these big problems of the day.
2: That's an acceptable outcome. I guess also in terms of practical accountability that isn't a total fantasy, you know, the Senate still will have to vote in Donald Trump's impeachment trial, presumably, if the Supreme Court finds that to be constitutional, at which point Mitch McConnell and co do have an opportunity you know, to turn their backs on on Donald Trump. And having promised that my birthday gift to you guys was not talking about Trump that much more, clearly, if there's an impeachment trial, we'll have to come back to him. So um, I apologise for that in advance thank you both. We'll find out how presidents came to be judged on their first hundred days in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. On our website, there's a beautiful photo essay from John Fasman and Bruce Gilden. and just to underline Bruce was responsible for the photos and John the words rather than the other way around, Uh, to go with those voices from Washington, D.C. that we heard earlier. our data teams tracking everything the Biden administration does in its first 100 days? We've put a link to both of those in the show notes. Meanwhile, in the print edition this week, there are a couple of really eye-opening pieces that will tell you everything you need to know about the new geopolitics of semiconductors. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. That's in the notes for this episode, too.
4: My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking.
2: A week after he was sworn in, President Franklin Roosevelt addressed America's 60 million radio listeners.
4: I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days, and why it was done, and what the next steps are going to be.
2: It was the first of his famous fireside chats. A president had never before spoken to the American people so intimately. It was a stroke of genius at a time of unprecedented economic peril. The banks were shut, investment at a standstill. FDR's aides feared the violent overthrow of the whole capitalist system. And I know that when you
4: understand what we in Washington have been about, I shall continue to have your cooperation as fully as I have had your sympathy and your help.
2: Earlier that day, a Sunday, Congress had passed the Emergency Banking Act, effectively federal deposit insurance, to allow the banks to reopen. Roosevelt's words of reassurance came with a flurry of new legislation that became the New Deal calm was restored. For their first dance as president and first lady, Barack and Michelle Obama chose an old Etta James number. A spotlit Beyoncé serenaded them from across the ballroom. After the nosedive the country had taken under the most recent Bush presidency, it was all rather intoxicating. But the task the new president faced was no less awesome. The country was in the grips of the worst slump since Roosevelt's time. Like Roosevelt, Obama needed an aggressive, free-spending plan to restore confidence. The best vice president that we've had in a long time. Joe yeah. no Biden. 29 days later, Congress passed a stimulus package that cut taxes and expanded unemployment support. The Recovery Act cost $800 billion. Joe Biden had the task of marshaling it through. Joe will keep an eye on how precious tax dollars are being spent. To you, he's Mr. Vice President, but around the White House, we call him the sheriff. But not one House Republican voted for the bill, putting the administration on the defensive as the president pivoted to his personal priority, health care for all. Despite Joe Biden's experience on Capitol Hill, he struggled to get Republicans to cross the aisle for his boss.
4: Confidence and courage are the essentials of
2: success in carrying out our plan. It was FDR who set the standard for what a president can achieve in his first 100 days, a term he himself coined. Subsequent administrations have been judged against this whirlwind of activity that transformed government and the country.
4: You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing
2: fear. FDR conjured 15 new pieces of legislation and an alphabet soup of new agencies in those early days, but also something much more valuable, the confidence of a big enough swathe of American people to make a lasting difference. It
4: is your problem, my friends, Your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States has spoken to you from the White House in Washington, D.C.,
2: Well, famously, it took almost a decade between Roosevelt's first 100 days and all that flurry of executive action and the Great Depression ending with the U.S. entry into World War II after Pearl Harbor. John Fassman, Joe Biden will be hoping that his first 100 days has a slightly quicker impact. And he started off with a flurry of executive orders. Which of those really grabbed your attention?
0: Yeah, he signed 17 of them on his first days. The biggest ones, to my mind, are the rollback of Trump's Muslim ban. They are the rollback of Trump's census plans that he wanted to, Trump wanted to exclude non-citizens from the census count. Biden undid that. He mandated masks on all federal property and by all federal employees. He rejoined the Paris Climate Accords. He rejoined the World Health Organization. He plans to sign another 10 executive orders among them, um, invoking the Defense Production Act to improve vaccine supplies. So these are all things that he had telegraphed that he was going to do before he took office. And he's doing them quite quickly.
3: Yeah, I think that that's the right list to highlight. I was struck because I spend my time writing about energy and climate that the that what he did were um, important steps for signaling his intention rather than anything that makes a huge substantive difference in the short term. So, for instance, the temporary halt on leasing activities in the Arctic, which I wrote about a few weeks ago, that leasing was mandated by Congress. So, it's not entirely straightforward what happens next. He's had this temporary halt. Clearly, that's a problem, but that's not the end of it. There's going to be more action there. Uh, In terms of rejoining the Paris Agreement, that is hugely important symbolically. But America needs to lay out as being part of the Paris Agreement, what its commitments are going to be for lowering carbon emissions. We don't actually know what type of targets Biden will set, nor whether he'll be able to convince Congress to pass sufficient action to meet those targets. So what he did, for instance, in climate is hugely important in terms of signaling, but there's a lot of work still to come.
2: John, executive orders are great for demonstrating that you're in charge and for getting quick results. But if you really want to change America, you have to do so through legislation. Joe Biden comes in faced with two immediate really big problems. Number one being the COVID-19 epidemic. More than 400,000 Americans have now died of COVID-19. And number two being the related economic problems, unemployment up close to 7%. He's hoping that he'll be able to get a big stimulus package and perhaps an infrastructure package through Congress. How do you like the chances of that, given that Democrats have you know, 50 plus one in Vice President Kamala Harris in the Senate, nothing close to a filibuster-proof majority? I think the chances
0: are not bad for COVID relief. It may not be 1.9 trillion, but he'll get something through. The next thing he wants is infrastructure with a big sort of climate component. I think that's possible. Um, I think what comes after that is less certain Schumer really wants some sort of comprehensive immigration bill. And Biden did lay out a path to citizenship for the undocumented. Um, I think there's also going to be a push for governance reform, democracy reform, some sort of ethics legislation. And I think it depends on how Democrats manage their majority statuses. I think they control what comes to the Senate floor and they have a majority in the House, but it's narrow in both cases. And in both cases, they're going to have to make a lot of use of the sort of, of this coalition of centrists. In the Senate, that's gonna be people like Manchin, Cinema, Angus King, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Those five or six people are gonna emerge as, as super powerful over the next couple of years.
3: The other thing that I think is interesting is that For people who care about specific issues, such as climate change, there's this tendency to think about, okay, we want a really big, comprehensive climate bill that takes on all of the things that we want it to accomplish, that sets out really bold ambitions uh, coupled with spending in a way that we feel is commensurate with the challenge. I think much more likely, given the composition of the Senate, what you're going to get is climate that's infused into all different other kinds of bills, you know, that's infused into executive orders. Um, explicitly, but also in the management of different agencies across the government, whether it's the Department of Transportation, the Department of Commerce, whether it's the SEC that's looking at how to require companies to disclose climate risks. And then you might see it crop up in a big infrastructure bill, in a big stimulus COVID stimulus bill, that it's going to be um, introduced in all different kinds of ways, probably, rather than in one huge standalone bill.
2: I think it's going to be really interesting watching what Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate majority leader, decide to prioritise and in what order, because they've got an incredibly complicated problem to solve here. There are all sorts of things, all sorts of issues that different people in America and different factions of the Democratic Party think of as the most important thing. So that might be taking care of child poverty. It might be Getting the millions of Americans who lost their jobs back into work. Or it might be immigration reform, or it might be climate change, or it might be something else. And they have to run those competing priorities through a kind of complicated algorithm that mixes sort of morality and ethics, you know, what is really the most urgent thing facing America, with questions of political calculation. Because I think it's probably true that each piece of legislation they introduce. If they're able to get it through, it might make the next one a bit harder. So do you start with something that's a really big ask, like healthcare reform? Or do you go for something more modest? And if you go for something more modest, have you then squandered the opportunity to do something bold later down the line? So it's going to be really, really interesting to watch how this plays out. Thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to talk some more about the mechanics of government. One of the most startling aspects of Donald Trump's presidency was his complete disinterest in the process of governing. People who monitor how the American government works have been sounding the alarm about corrosion in the bureaucratic machinery over the past four years. I've been speaking to Catherine Dunn-Tenpas of the University of Virginia. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she researches presidential staff and transitions.
1: Biden is ahead of pace of all of his seven predecessors he was essentially the democratic nominee probably as of april because they knew that they were already ready to prepare for transition and starting to think about candidates for key jobs way back in april this is a very organized group they're disciplined and they have a great deal of experience and i think that is very beneficial at this moment
2: and what sort of shape are the federal bureaucracies that the biden team will come in and take over what sort of shape are they in i mean There was famously high turnover in every bit of the Trump administration.
1: The turnover at the cabinet level was off the charts compared to his predecessors. I have data on my Brookings Tracker website. Trump lost 14 members of his cabinet compared to Obama, who lost three, George W. Bush, who lost two. And it's just, it's staggering. Um, The White House staff at the senior level, I monitor what's called the A-team of White House staff. And again, the turnover was off the charts. In his first year, he almost tripled the previous rate of turnover in the first year. And by the end of his fourth year, he had lost 91% of his A-team staff. There are six people left who stayed all four years, and two of the six people are related to him.
2: And the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, by contrast, is full of people who have lots of experience from the Obama years, the eight years in office, and even Bill Clinton's presidency as well. Some of them have been around for a long time.
1: I don't think you could find a starker contrast in the quality of the staff that's coming in with the Biden compared to the Trump. I actually have a whole database looking back all the way to Reagan at the jobs that the senior staff had before they entered the White House and where they went after. And Trump's staff, his starting A-team, had by far the least amount of prior government experience and the most of private sector experience. Government is not the private sector. You know, they don't operate the same. Many of the principles simply don't hold. Not only is the incoming Biden team the most experienced in having served in the federal government, either at the White House or the executive branch level, but it's also the most diverse team in history. You see more people of color, far more women than were in the Trump administration. And I think having this variety of of perspectives, um, all sorts of historic, first, the first woman to be the Secretary of Treasury the first Black to be the Secretary of Defense, the first Native American ever to be put into the Cabinet, and then the first immigrant who's running the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. And I think all of these new appointments and this dedication to diversity will just energize the government in a way it has never been, at least in the last four years.
2: Charlotte, the diversity of Joe Biden's picks so far to serve with him in his administration is really striking. As Catherine mentioned, also the experience that these folks have. I'm interested in the sort of ideological diversity in there, if you like. I think this administration looks to be a pretty centrist one, judging by its staffing. And I think there's a really interesting way in which racial diversity and centrism sort of go together in the Democratic Party these days. So, Just to give an example, Lloyd Austin, who's the pick as the Defence Secretary, is a former Raytheon board member. And large parts of the Democratic Party, particularly the Democratic left, don't much like big defence contractors having a line into the Department of Defence, nor do they like former... Generals um, serving as defense secretary because of the worries there about civil military relations and you know keeping that divide clear, but because Lloyd Austin is the first African American to hold the post of Secretary of Defense, that makes him somewhat immune from those criticisms for, for the left. so I think Joe Biden, in addition to pursuing diversity because it 's the right thing to do in a country that 's very diverse you know, is being quite smart here. What what else strikes you about the people that he's picked for his team?
3: Yeah, I was really interested in those comments about the gap within the Trump administration between all the people who had private sector experience and um, whether that hindered their ability to get stuff done in the public sector. And I do think that there are people who have private sector experience who can do a really good job in government. I kind of reject the idea that Having had um, a full career outside of the public sector means that you'll be totally ineffective um, in the private sector. And you, you know, a good person who's worked at a company out in the world takes stock of the organization in which they work and thinks about how best to optimize its operations. And what was really failing, I think, within the Trump administration was not that people had private sector experience, but that they didn't take that experience and then look around and think about how best to apply it within the government. And you saw that undermine their own goals often. Um, this is particularly true with some of the regulatory rollbacks uh, for for climate and energy where they were kind of tripped over themselves in terms of knowing how to, uh, to dial back different administrative rules, filing guidance, et cetera. I had someone tell me within the environmental community imagine what they could have done if they knew what they were doing. So I think that sort of incompetence is as much to blame, is much more to blame than um, having had experience in the private sector. And I think Joe Biden, to his credit, has appointed, as, as we heard, a hugely diverse set of people to his administration, diverse in terms of their background, also diverse in terms of their thinking. And that includes people who were in the private sector. And he's gotten a little bit of pushback. He appointed Brian Deese, who had been at BlackRock, um, and he was put in charge of the National Economic Council. That got uh, attracted quite a lot of criticism, but I, I don't think that having been the head of sustainable investing at blackrock should be an automatic disqualifier i think that's a huge mistake
2: and john the first order of business for this very experienced staff is getting covid-19 under control and also ensuring a smooth or as smooth as possible a vaccination rollout as smooth as
0: possible and as broad as
2: possible i mean the
0: thing that's striking about biden's covid plans is that they're not rocket science and they're not some sort of radical rethinking of government functions they're just government functions, right? Joe Biden's governing strategy is going to be to govern, which is a welcome change. And the COVID strategy just involves mobilizing the full force of federal government to get vaccines where they need to go, to set up more vaccination sites, as more vaccines become eligible to to lower the threshold for who can get them. These are things that the government should have been thinking about a year ago. And it's a shame that we've had to wait until 400,000 of our countrymen have died before they get put in place. But it is a welcome sign that they're being put in place now.
3: The part of the presidential transition that I feel is being really underreported and needs some more attention is the actual move into the White House. My husband was joking about how strange it would be to move into the White House in any circumstance, but particularly in a pandemic. You're moving into the bedroom that 24 hours earlier was Trump's bedroom. And once you start thinking about that, you can't unthink it. And the question is, like, how much Lysol is too much Lysol? There's never going to be enough. Um, But... I heard, and then I started looking it up. Apparently they spent $500,000 on the cleanup, which is way more than usual. Some of that had to do with replacing carpets and things like that. But um, I really, if if it were if it were me and I were Joe Biden, I would really be focusing on that bedroom, like all the furniture needs to be removed.
2: Well, the cover of this week's Economist features Joe Biden embarking on a deep clean of the White House himself. That was before we knew about the $500,000 bill for doing so. Of course, Donald Trump did once say famously that he was very much a germaphobe, so perhaps the whole place was left in immaculate condition. I
3: don't know. You want some new mattresses in there.
2: All right. Before I let you guys go, I have a quiz for you. James Polk's inauguration in 1845 was the first reported by The Economist. The article appeared more than three weeks after the event itself. While Polk's nomination had been the first news story reported by Telegraph, bulletins still crossed the Atlantic by boat. The Economist picked out Polk's pledge to bring the Oregon Territory into the Union in his inaugural speech. Settlement of the Far West had picked up after the publication of the first guidebook to the Oregon Trail. Where did the 2,000-mile trek begin?
3: This was a very popular video game in the 1980s. Yeah. John Fassman, did you play it?
2: I did, I did. My sons play it now.
3: In retrospect, it's really weird. You spent your whole time... John Pritt, is this an American thing? You spend your whole time um, trying to... F- to cross creeks with your wagon and then it sinks and then your child dies of typhoid right. stuff like that um that was sort of the main excitement they didn't
2: have computers in britain in the 1980s it was still just abacus
3: <laughs> <laughs> i don't have an answer about where the oregon trail begins but i can keep on telling you about this video game in an attempt to stall
0: did it begin in it is uh detroit
2: it began in Independence, Missouri, which is now a suburb of... I
3: was about to say St. Louis, yeah, it would have which been was super close. close. Yeah. Independence
2: is now a suburb Ugh. of Kansas City. Bonus point, Charlotte. Don't, don't despair. There's a bonus point available no, here. No, I
3: don't. I don't Which 20th it.
2: century president has his library there in Independence, Missouri? Harry Truman. It's got to be, right? It was yeah. Harry Truman. Fasman, you were quickest on the draw there, so a point to you. The Oregon trek at the time took four to six months. A ticket for the Great Wagon Trail in the summer of 1843 cost $1. How much was a plot of land on arrival? $1?
3: Yeah, it would have been part of the Homestead Act.
2: It was free. Yeah, exactly. Well done. Married couples could claim 640 acres. Unmarried settlers got a plot half that size, so there was a big incentive to turn up, wed. Well, that's a great place to end... Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at We do appreciate all your comments. This week, our learned listeners have helped clarify the law on the gay wedding cake case and kept us up to date on Arnold Schwarzenegger Trivia. On this week's Economist Asks podcast, Anne McElvoy speaks to Cindy McCain, who attended the inauguration, about what her late husband's relationship with President Biden tells us about hopes for bipartisanship. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.